Hey, what's up, guys? Welcome back. This is the Do Big Things Podcast. My guest today, Mark Jacksena, and I had some good laughs at our own expenses throughout this conversation. We're both aging white men with faded tattoos that somehow managed to find peace and sobriety around the same time we found trail running and ultramarathons. It kind of seems to be a common running theme. (laughs) However, Mark wears it really well. With roots in the punk and the hardcore music scene, we talk about early influences that led us to where we are today. Mark has been a featured chef and appeared on Bravo TV documentaries for his culinary badassery. Say that a few times. Culinary badassery. He's coming up in just a minute. This is a cool conversation. Uh, Shout out to our sponsors and supporters. I would like to thank Bigger Than The Trail. They are a 501c3 nonprofit that gets you up to three free months of therapy through the BetterHelp Network. You guys, it's easy, and believe me, it doesn't cost you a dime. I tried it. I went to biggerthanthetrail.com. I signed up. Within 48 hours, I had a licensed therapist, and I talked to her once a week until I felt a little bit better. You know, I talked to her for a couple months. You can talk on the phone, you can Zoom, you can text, whatever you're comfortable with. So if you're struggling or you just need someone to talk to about something that's going on right now, uh, check out biggerthanthetrail.com and get the help you need. I can't recommend these guys enough. I love them. Biggerthanthetrail.com. We'd also like to thank Exoscan for the best running apparel, Athletic Brewing for the best non-alcoholic beer, and Alter Ego Running for the best running hats on the market. We've got you guys covered. These sponsors, along with our loyal Patreon subscribers, keep this show afloat, and I can't thank them all enough. I love you all, and I can't wait to share some miles with you all this summer. This is the Do Big Things Podcast, where we want to inspire you to do big things. This podcast is brought to you by Big Things Crewing, a service for ultra runners from beginner to elite. Not only can we get you trained up, but we can also crew you into the finish line. Find us at big-things-crewing.com. Now, here is your host, Adam McRoberts. So I hate to admit this, Mark, but uh, I was scrolling through Instagram and I found your profile and I thought, man, here's a guy that looks like I could be friends with. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, man, reached out and, uh, you know, you're you're an ultra runner and it looks like you're a, a, a chef as well and an old school punk rock guy. And uh, so, yeah, I just wanted to chat with you and, and hear your story, man. But yeah, give I think us an I, intro. Well, it's funny. Um yeah, I've spent most of my life trying to be uh, sort of the, uh, you know, the individual, you know, in high school, I was one of the few, I grew up in a small mill town outside, right at the foothills of the Adirondacks. So not a lot of skateboarders, not a lot of punk rock kids. There was a small amount of us. So, you know, very authentic, very original, same thing, you know, as I worked my way through uh, my professional career after I got out of school, which I didn't go to school to be a chef. Um, and, uh, you know, the whole time it was always just pushing, pushing, pushing. Like I had to be like nobody else. And I find myself into my fifties, I get clean and sober and I'm a cliche, 
<laughs> Another white dude with tattoos has gotten sober running long distance in the woods. Yes. Well, you and me both, man. I mean, <laughs> uh, yeah, either great minds think alike or we're not that original, one or the other. But <laughs> I think it's a little bit of both. <laughs> Probably a little bit of both, but that's all right, man. But yeah, man, just wanted to hear your story. Um, like I said, uh, like minds. So, um, but uh, yeah, just take us back, Mark. Tell us uh, how it all started. You said you grew up outside of the Anirondacks. I'm yeah. guessing, guessing you weren't an outdoorsman back then. No, actually, I mean, my, my father, my father kind of, um, I mean, he got me into hiking really early. We used to go up and hike in the Adirondacks all the time, do high peaks. And, uh, I never, uh, I never really fit anybody that sort of follows along on, on, on any of my social media things. As I've worked my way through my sobriety, I've also worked, I've been fairly open and vulnerable about like all the weird things that go on with, uh, with recovering as you work your way through assuming certain things and you start to unlock traumas and things that you'd forgotten about. And, uh, my, uh, one of the things is I was coming up out of, uh, into puberty. So I didn't really fit into the sports. I mean, I had, I played a little bit of soccer, um, more of a defense minded person. Um, never been really good at the, uh, uh sort of, I've never been like the lead singer guy I play drums, you know, I'd rather, I'd rather play defense than either be the goalie or the guy or, you know, or center scoring. Um, and, uh, my father had picked up early on that, uh, he noticed that the one, the one asset that I had on the field was that I could out basically just outlast everybody. Mm. You know, I didn't, I didn't have to like sort of bend over and double over after running. I mean, I just had natural endurance and, um, he had, uh, signed me up. He decided that he was going to sign me up to run, uh, a local 15 K it's called the Boilermaker, which is actually a relatively in the road running world. It's kind of a, it's kind of a big race. Okay. Um, back, back then it was like Bill Rogers would show up. The Kenyans would show up. Um, it happens in July and people don't necessarily think of, of New York, especially upstate or central New York as being hot, but it gets extremely oppressive um, because it's in the Valley with humidity so an 80 degree day at about 90, 90% humidity. And it's, it's, it's a broiler maker for sure. So he signed me up for it. And I was doing some, um, these, uh, development run developmental runs. They called and we meet every Wednesday and it was a 10 K sort of this, the more hilly section of, of, uh, the run. And, uh, this was me just going in just before I went into high school. So, I mean, I was also smoking cigarettes with my friends and hanging out in the woods. So I really just sort of mailed it in. And uh, I started getting serious probably about a week and a half before the race, <laughs> <laughs> as a 14-year-old boy is wont to do. Yep. And uh, I ended up finishing like in third for my age division um, w- without even trying. So it was just sort of like one of those situations where the, like it kind of clicked for me that I was probably good at this. Mm-hmm. Um, so I joined track and cross country, um, although it was funny when I joined track, which was uh, the, the actually the first sports that I joined outside of soccer when I got into high school and uh, I couldn't remember what I was good at for running. So I signed up for the sprints because I figured why not get it done with. And um, I'm no good. I am no good at sprints as a skateboarder. I don't have, I don't have high hops. I'm not like a big, tall Ollie guy. I'm more of like style and aggression. And uh, that was definitely the same way with running. Um, I'm not the short distance guy. So um, I, I started running, you know, both, uh, cross country and track and then picked up uh, wrestling as well, which I varsity in. Right. And, uh, 
as as I got better with my running, my father sort of remember. Have you ever seen the Breakfast Club? Of course. Yeah. So I mean, you know, the the big reveal, of course, is that we're a little bit of everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, uh, the, the Emilio Estevez character and my father's relationship sort of took that 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 turn at that point where it's like I go like I'd go up to my girlfriend's house. Um, after getting up in the morning and putting in six miles before school and then come home, eat breakfast, head up to school, do practice, run home from practice, have dinner, do homework, and then like maybe go out for a run. And then he would drop me off at my girlfriend's house and I would be able to run home when I was done. She lived about 10 miles away, give or take. So it was a, a lot of running at the time, um, which, you know, I think, uh, I mean, there was so many, there was so much bad information on running or, or at least that I was getting at that point. You know, I mean, people were telling us to overstride and, you know, just keep putting in the miles and no pain, no gain and all that, you know, all that nonsense. Um, it's a wonder that I didn't end up, it's a wonder that I didn't end up injured sooner, to be honest with you from running. <laughs> <laughs> um, so as we got through high school, I got in my junior year and, um, my father and, the uh, a local coach for the, uh, um, for MVCC, they had a fairly strong cross-country program. There was a runner there by the name of Jerry Lawson at the time. Um, and I was running, you know, at around his clip and around his pace coming in, I'm coming into my junior year, at like local five K's and, and races like that. So I kind of caught the eye of, of Coleman and my dad started talking to him and they had started to get some traction on getting a scholarship from um, university in Oregon. Mm-hmm. And which would have been awesome. But the funny thing was, is by then I just fell out. Of, I, like the joy of running was gone because it's all that I did. You know, my father, I know, I don't, I don't, it sounds like I'm kind of shitting on my dad. I'm sorry for swearing. I don't mean to, um, you know, I mean, we all make mistakes as humans and adults. So, I mean, I, I want to be clear if anybody takes any takeaway that I might say, it sounds negative, not at all. He did the best that he could with what he knew how. And I appreciate that for what it is. But at that time, it just, it absolutely sucked the joy out of it. Um, so Dropped out of high school, became a punk rock skateboard kid and um, sort of vagabonded for a couple of years. Um, I ended up picking up a, uh, a B team sponsorship from Alva and uh, was working at a skate shop. So I was able to like travel around a little bit um, and, uh, you know, hit contests and I was pushing into 1990 ish, right around 89. And um, the, uh, Dave Duncan, who was the captain of the uh, Elva team at that time, was like, hey, you know, show up this contest um, in, in um, Saratoga and just show. All you got to do is just show well and we'll bump up your we'll bump your sponsorship up. Um, and it's basically at that point. Now you start to see, the, you know, pictures and pictures and magazines and stuff like that. Nothing at all. Like today, there wasn't brand ambassadors. You know, it's like mm-hmm. people sent in videos or managed somehow or another to like swindle themselves onto a team. Um, which in my case, just because of the fact that I absolutely idolized the Alba guys. I mean, you know, I had tattoos, I had dreadlocks, had the attitude. I mean, I was, I was made to be on that team um, in the sense, because I made myself to want to be on that team. Um, I ended up, uh, ended up tearing my ACL, my MCL absolutely shattered my left knee, um, no insurance. And uh, at that that competition. No, 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 no. Actually I was, I was a weekend before it was a weekend before uh, uh, I was supposed to meet up with my girlfriend at a skate shop in Syracuse that I was at. And she lived in Utica, just about 60 miles away, give or take. Um, God bless her. I mean, she would, we didn't have cell phones or anything else like that. So it'd be like, you know, 
normal time coming in on the weekend. And sometimes she'd be sitting down there waiting for me for two, three hours waiting for the bus to come in because I decided to go skating before coming up or I get into town and like go skating and be like, Hey, you know, we'll get together around three o'clock in the afternoon. Cause usually around that time in the summer, the roads are just soft. It's asphalt, like tar. So you can't really skate on it anyways. So usually midday would be a good time to get caught up. And I was just having one of those days where um, you just flow. It's like when you're, when you're running really long distance and you just hit that cadence and that heart rate, you can go forever. Mm-hmm. Exactly like that. So everything was just kind of popping for me. I mean, it was like my skating was sort of hitting, hitting that level that I wanted it to hit. Everything was just peaking properly. And uh, my buddy was like, Hey, he goes, you want to, you want to, you want me to drop you off and you can go uh, hang out with Diana. I was like, well, let's go up to Crisana's ramp. I want to try something up there. And so we got up there. It was, I'm not a vert skater. Like I said, it's, I'm, I'm a street skater, but um, I love skating um, or at that point, love skating pools and, and loved pool style skating on ramps. It wasn't like a Tony Hawk kind of guy um, low, hard, fast on the lip type stuff. And, uh, so I just wanted, basically it was just, was feeling about landing a big front side ollie air. So if people that aren't skaters, that's where the board and the skater lift up off the ramp with no hands touching and, you know, your backside is to the ground. So a lot of times when you try a trick, the first time you don't really land it, you just sort of go through the motions and run off of it. I landed it in such a way that I surprised myself that I absolutely stuck it and went to step off anyways. And everything went forward except for, well, everything stayed where it was except for my left leg that followed down the ramp of the skateboard, twisted and shattered everything. Um, that was, uh, and that was it. I mean, I pretty much, I mean, I still skated a little bit after then, uh, after that, but not, not like I was mm-hmm. ended up meeting, uh, this girl who is now my wife. And, uh, I decided at that point, I basically, once I had finished up, I realized that I, that skating wasn't going to be it for me, that I wasn't going to like, that wasn't going to be my ticket out. That wasn't going to be anything that meant like, it wasn't going to be life-changing for me. And, uh, uh, basically closed my end of the shop and moved back home started, started college. And that's when I met my wife and, uh, and I was sort of straggled through, um, you know, the next 25 years are sort of a weird blur. Um, I started doing, I was, I was, I was a writer, um, because of, because of Henry Rollins, which is sort of how this, this conversation was sparked. Right. Mm-hmm, absolutely. Um, on those bus trips back and forth, I'm a huge, huge black flag fan. Um, and specific, specifically Rollins era, um, black flag, mm-hmm. um, just because it never, it didn't feel whiny and it didn't feel over the top macho. I mean, it really came from a place that, that I understood at least, and uh, uh, a buddy of mine, John Cannon, at the time, I was traveling back and forth, like I said, using using a bus. And uh, he gave me one of Rollins' spoken word tapes. Um, so back, I guess real quick backstory. When I was in when I was coming up through grade school, um, I was designated as a gifted child. And uh, which anybody that's ever been down that road, um, that's a blessing and a curse. Um, and I find that a lot of guys that I know, I, I'm sure females as well, but specifically a lot of guys that I know, um, when we're told that we're smart, we assume that we know everything. And that really sort of carries along some people into their adulthood. Some of us didn't realize how bad maybe we or our friends had gotten until things got so divisive. Um, and I started to recognize people that I really respected their intellect, counted on the fact that they were smart as sort of a... Uh, um, I guess like a certificate to, you know, like 
whatever they wanted, whatever they said, without really thinking it through, because they've always managed to, in a roundabout way, bullshit their way through school. Mm-hmm. So the reason I brought that up is so like through most of my life, people have always been like, Oh, he's so smart. And it's like, you know, my wife will tell you, like when we first started dating, she said something about my Adam's apple. And I'm like, well, where's yours? You know, I was like, let me see yours. Of course women don't have an Adam's apple. Right. Um, you know, and mind you, this is from somebody that, you know, people are like, Oh my God, it's gotta be so awesome. Like, you know, hanging out with Mark all the time. It's really not. <laughs> so uh, my friend gives me this tape and Rollins mentions Nietzsche and to me, that sounded like a Japanese guy, you know, I mean, just the way that he dropped it. Right. Um, and it was, you know, I mean, I think it was your basic, that which does not kill me makes me stronger quote. And that just sort of locked in somewhere around like 1987. So fast forward till about 1991. I'm in school. I had first gone. Um, I, I started when I first started college, I was going to do um, uh, civil engineering and got through a semester of that, like right at the beginning of AutoCAD, second semester, I took a psychology course. And I'm like, oh, yeah, this is totally what I want to do. I mean, if anybody, and we'll probably end up touching on my backstory a little bit. I mean, I needed it. Um, <laughs> I needed, definitely needed therapy, although I didn't recognize <laughs> I think deep down I knew it, um, but I didn't quite lock into it. Um, so I did two semesters of psychology and um, youth and, uh, health and human services and ended up taking a philosophy course. And that changed everything for me because I realized that I wasn't really looking for the answers to my problems. I was looking for the genesis of my problems. I was looking for truth. You know, I I really wanted to get past something. I wanted something greater than myself. Um, So we always, we end up, I ended up basically um, becoming a, uh, a student, a student of Nietzsche. And I had a, uh, 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 an instructor who was, um, I mean, he was my, he was my counselor, if you will. And, uh, Giamatti was a uh, uh, was an old school Thomas Aquinas type guy. I mean, very classical. And I'm coming at him with these very like brash, like we're going to take dichotomies and smash them together, going to make them coalesce with a hammer. Um, and it was filtering Nietzsche through this sort of hardcore punk ethos. And just on a whim, he asked me if I'd ever thought about um, Eastern philosophy. And I'm like, I'm like, I have no interest in anything outside of like. Western culture and American specifically, because that's all that I understand. This sort of weird, uh, Jean Bald Rillard postmodernism that I didn't even realize was going on at the time. And I was like, no, nah, I've got no interest in, you know, blue people or people with tad hands or, you know, any of this nonsense. Um, not looking for Jedi mind tricks. And usually like anything else, once I, you know, my wife will tell me something and I'm always like, no, 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 I'll push back against it. And as soon as I push back, you know, something else is going like, yeah, maybe she's got something there. And same thing with Gio. And um, he managed to click a sort of an early genesis to where I'm at now, um, basically from that point, making this a very long story without making it any longer. Um, that I sort of locked into becoming a Buddhist at that point um, and started exploring more creative writing and got into doing some poetry um, and writing like that turns out I was fairly good at that, which I ended up traveling for a number of years as a traveling poet doing performance poetry and slam poetry wow. in the mid nineties. Um, and, uh, but anyways, I was, as I was doing philosophy, it got to a point where like anything in education or academia that starts to get sort of entrenched into schools and, um, really muddies the waters sometimes. I think when people get like that and I started cooking again, and I say that cause I worked for my uncle when I was a little bit younger. I took a part-time job on top of two other part-time jobs while going to school. And 
discovered that I really enjoyed everything about cooking. Um, because as I told when I when I dropped out of college without getting a degree, I told you, I'm like, you know, good steak, bad steak, can't tell me it's not a steak. And that was my problem with philosophy. So I ended up uh I ended up starting cooking and was still writing. And uh July 3rd, 1995, um, I experienced my first panic attack. I didn't know what it was at the time, um, but there's sort of this disassociation that goes on um in a way that not like any depressive episode that I ever experienced. Um, really, I, I had never experienced anything like this. And um, it carried over in the next day. And the only reason I know the date is because the next day, um, Foo Fighters' first album came out. Yeah. And we were getting ready to go to uh, go on a, a quick little road trip up to the Adirondacks to go to this beach. So I ran to the record store that morning to pick it up. Um, and that's the only reason why I actually have a, like a tag date on, on when this all sort of started. And uh, it, it, it sort of kept coming. The thing is, is I don't know if, if, if you've ever experienced a panic attack or like severe anxiety, um, it can manifest in many ways. And for me, there was um, almost sounded like when my grandmother, who's diabetic, um, would experience low blood sugar um, or um, also at times like extreme uh, heart rate jumps so I thought I was having heart attacks like I was in and out of emergency rooms and mind you I'm also working as I'm working as a young chef at this point so there's a lot of pressure um, to take on with that and on top of it I'm doing performance poetry which is sort of like being a lead singer right. which I said I'm very good at so all these things started manifesting and my wife was the one that pointed out you know I mean she didn't go like oh you're having panic attacks and anxiety she goes you know maybe you're just fucking crazy mm. but that's that's New York speak for, you know, you might have some issues. And um, once I started, we didn't have Google or anything at that point, but once I started to do some digging around um, and, and really looking into all of it, it made sense. So, I mean, at that point it was self-diagnosed and uh, I found that I was able to sort of create a, an alter ego um, where I could sort of transfer some of my um, worries and concerns and then sort of push those out. So I had a nickname growing up, Monk, and that became my my stage persona. And part of that was, and I, and I discovered, you know, if I had a, a vodka seven with lime before I had to get up there, it just sort of eased things up. And it has, it's fairly obvious to anybody with half a brain, they know where this goes. And that just carried with me shit until five years ago. Wow. Um, I mean, I was never, never like the down and out drunk, although, you know, it's funny, I'd I've written about it a couple of times and said, you know, my bottom was like as boring as watching paint dry. But the funny thing was, is it was really more of a false bottom because there was so many times and from, you know, from 1995 until 25 years later, where there's plenty of bottoms. Sure. Um, so um, to, to sort of tie tidy that up with a little, with a nice little bow, um, I decided to, I, I pushed myself through um, many years being still drinking and managing to put myself sort of at the top of the game in a larger market. We moved to Charlotte, became a marquee name, went to the James Beard house, which is, you know, the equivalent, like if you want a James Beard award, it's like winning a Grammy if you're a musician. And uh, so, I mean, I was cooking at that level. I was getting national press. I was getting uh, like all kinds of things, but I was also getting so far up my own ass. Mm -hmm. um, this, 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 this original joke of, of monk became sort of an overriding thing. And I just started like, didn't even realize when the line switched, even though in my head, it was still like being self-depreciative. Um, people just assume that's who I was. So, um, 
this project that I was working on at, when I was at that level um, just came to pass where it was not good for the business for me to be there. I mean, I showed up every day. I worked hard. It wasn't that. Um, but I definitely wasn't in a good, I wasn't in a good place for myself. And I don't know that they were a good fit for me either with the amount of pressure that was being put on me. So I ended up doing the next seven years of uh, um, basically taking some very uh, uh, ego crushing jobs um, and finally got myself a new, uh, taking a class. My wife was, she works at a local college and she's like, you should take a class, you should take a class. So finally I was like, Hey, I'm gonna take a class. And she goes, Oh, sweet. What are you going to do? I'm like, I'm gonna take pottery, <laughs> which is, you know, I say you don't make money as a potter. So, um, but that was the beginning of my recovery slowly, just learning how to center clay started to put my life into a certain perspective. Um, and I did really well with that. And then just before the pandemic started, I was going to uh, start rock climbing again. Cause I kept saying to myself, like, you haven't done anything epic in so long. Like, you know, I mean, I've had a solid life trying to nutshell this whole thing. And I was like, I'm going to get back into doing some rock climbing. So I signed up for, uh, uh, I was going to sign up for a, a season's pass at the U S whitewater rafting center here in Charlotte, which has a tremendous trail system um, these great rock climbing walls, whitewater rafting, kayaking, zip line. I mean, it's just amazing. I mean, it's the type of stuff you see in Portland, but we've got it right here in Charlotte, which is banker town. So to have that here, it's, it's nice. Um, so I went and bought a parking pass, got some information. And I was going to pull the trigger on it. And by that point, the pandemic hit. So everything kind of got shut down. So I was like, well, I'll just continue as I was, I had just sort of started doing some running with my wife who hates running, but ran every day for two years on a running streak. And, uh, we went up there and I was just like, well, you know, let's, let's, let's go out and like run this little trail, see what goes on. She hated it. And I was like, oh my God, trail running, it's cross country. Mm-hmm. And that was it. And that's what brings us here today. Nice. <laughs> nice. <laughs> wow, man. Um, I know that's a lot to digest. No, that's perfect. That's perfect. Um, we have a lot in common, man. You and I both, um, I was a huge fan of Rollins as well. Um, took that inspiration and started publishing my own books as well. Um, nice. I remember when the Foo Fighters album came out that day because I went to the record store and bought it. Um, yep. Gosh, uh, I don't know. Five other things you said that I can relate to as well. But I don't, you know, the funny thing is, I think, I think Dave Grohl kind of gets a, he gets a short end of the stick a lot. You know what I mean? Because, and, but Rollins is the same way, right? I'm like, both those guys, like if you listen to Rollins talk about Rollins, it's like, people look at him and they're like, Oh my God, you know, it's like, that's that dude from liar. That's like, you know, that he's ripped and tatted and screaming at people in a pair of running shorts barefoot and charging shit. And it's like, he's so anxiety ridden, like just, but at the same time, a huge fan of life. Like right. he had a special on HBO a couple of years ago where he was talking about when he ran into RuPaul someplace. And it's like the quintessential Rollins, like dichotomy of like, hard ass and absolute fan of amazing people yeah, dave yeah. Grohl. dave Grohl. i've always felt like like even when he was he shows up everywhere my wife is like this guy's a sellout look at him he's on like he was on like a food network thing what the hell is he doing here and i'm like who the fuck cares he's like he's not there selling something like you can tell this guy just loves shit she doesn't like him and i'm not like I'm not a huge fan of like arena rock and these guys have really Same. become that yeah absolutely absolutely appreciate it I just got done listening to his audible book, uh, yesterday, actually, huh. dude, how is it? He's so fucking amazing. Like, yeah. I, like the guy's like the Forrest Gump of rock and roll. Yeah. And, but he doesn't take any of it for granted. Like he's like, and it's not like he's pushing it. 
you know, some people will be like, oh, you know, you just got to push forward. And it's not instead. He's just like, like in love with everything. Yeah. Like I, and I think that's the thing that with, with trail running specifically um, in the ultra community in general, I mean, that's like, there's that I've never seen so many people and they could be competing still root for everybody. You know, it's like in the last couple of years when things really got just ugly everywhere, like I never felt that really spill in. I saw it in so many other little, like all these little other communities that I'm involved with where it kind of spill over and even like small pockets, people like were like-minded would eat themselves. It's like, we need more Dave Grohl's. We need more fucking Henry Rollins in the world. You know, they, they sort of get past it and they're just like, you're into what you're into. Fuck. Yeah. You're not stepping on somebody. Awesome. And I love people like that. Totally. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, man. I saw Foo Fighters live uh, when they were a newer band back in the day. And Foo Fighters isn't one of my favorite bands to this day. They're all right. Right. But I love them and I respect what they're doing and I'd still go see them live. And, and I love Dave Grohl and Dave Grohl seems like he's just like a fan of everything, a fan of everything music, you know, and, and that's what I love about him. And yeah, I want to read his book, but man, I remember back in the day reading Rollins stuff and I was just an angry young man and it resonated with me so hardcore. I was working several jobs and I remember I had this job working in a gym where I would clean the floors and they had security cameras in this gym that covered most of the gym, except for a few little blind spots. And I would sit down there and it was like a third shift job. I'd work in the uh-huh. middle of the night. So I'm sitting down at three in the morning where the camera can't see me reading Rollins stuff, you know? <laughs> and, uh, yeah, it just inspired me so much. And, and he was just, um, you know, he was a straight edge guy back in the day, which I was not, it sounds like you were not, but I, 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 that inspired me. Like I looked up to that sort of lifestyle and, um, and he was just a DIY guy with his band, with his writing, with everything. He just didn't want to sell out to anybody and was doing it all himself. And yeah, I, I respected that. He took, I mean, he took a lot of shit when he did like the gap ads there in the early nineties right? or whatever. And I remember everybody going like, Oh, there's your boy selling gap ads. And I'm like, he's taking that money and flipping it right back around into his publishing company and putting out like all these amazing, like these people that otherwise wouldn't get a book out. Um, and then, you know, but there's, there, there comes a time and a place, I think, where I found that, like, like Rollins, when he was like, when I was younger, he was angry and he was like putting all these things out, especially the spoken word stuff. And then I think like, you know, sometimes you'd be running with somebody and they might get on a trail where it's a little bit higher than you or a little bit lower than you. And you're not quite seeing eye to eye. And I always felt like Rollins's sort of trajectory and my trajectory sort of hit those same highs and lows. It'd just be points where I'm like, nah, he's just a comedian right now. You know, and then a couple of years later, like I find him again. I'm like, fuck, I'm so stupid. He's so relevant. You know, it's yeah, like I need. So I, I, I and I, and I think though, I think any any artist or I mean, man, everybody's like that. Not any artist. I mean, every human being has has these. And I think sometimes it gets over, especially nowadays. I find it gets so overshadowed um, with 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 the presentation that we have to do. And I, it's so funny that we even have to do it right with social media, um, but. You know, I found when I first saw you, and I'm going to tangent off here and I'll pull back in, I promise you. No, um, you're good, dude. I love this. When, um, when I first started getting sober, the first thing that I noticed um, that became, or th- th- I think the thing that stuck out to me the most was where, you know, you'll, you'll see it, if you especially go on Instagram on Sundays, right? You're like, hashtag happy. And like, I know you, I know your listeners won't be able to see this, but like there in the picture is like a can of something, right? Mm. Or a picture of a frosty drink, you know? And it's like, with my buds and like the happiness stops being actually the thing 
and instead it becomes the, the object becomes the happiness, mm-hmm. the presentation of the object itself. Right. Um, and I started to recognize, like in, at least in myself, how much I had done that, how much I had transferred the, the, the internal idea of happiness into this external processes, these things that we put out. Um, shoot, now I was going to go back to something and I got... <laughs> No, no, no. I'm just wondering what you mean. Like, are you talking about like the the writing that you were putting out and the way you're trying to present yourself in the world as a young man? I think, well, I think, I mean, I think it's, I think it covers, at least for me specifically, I mean, it it, it sort of hit on so many notes, you Mm -hmm. know, as far as like recognizing this, this, this transference of actual happiness. And yeah, and I guess, I mean, in a roundabout way, I think I found that I didn't allow myself personally to have any happiness in my life, whether it was, um, because I didn't feel like I was worthy of it or because I hadn't like, I didn't know how, like, I didn't know what it looked like. Um, there's so many, I mean, there's so many things to, to really unwrap in that small thing. It's a, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a pretty messy suitcase um, to unpack. but um, you know, let's, I, I find, I find with, uh, um, with, with, especially going back to like to going back to Henry Rollins and stuff like that. Um, it's that, when you've got a community of people that can sort of help you unpack this stuff, um, it works out. And just really, this is a really shitty way to transfer back into the Henry Rollins thing. When I first jumped off on that tangent, Adam, I was like, Oh, this is it. I got it. And I just lost half of it. <laughs> I, I followed, I followed the trail down and got lost. <laughs> uh, um, but, uh, you know, going back to, you were talking about Foo Fighters real quick. Um, yeah, they're like the first album is amazing. The second album is really solid. And then I think by the third one, I just kind of like, eh. and it's like, I'll catch a song here and there. And it's like, I'm like, okay, that's great. But I'm not, even when I was listening to the book, I'm like, I'm gonna go back and listen to the first album. I was like, oh, that was good. And I listened to the second album and third one, I think it was color in the shape. And then fourth one came on. I'm like, oh, this is getting kind of tedious and whatnot. But the funny thing is, is like anytime Dave Grohl shows up in a band, like them mm-hmm. Crooked Vultures or Queens of the Stone Age, um or anything like that i'm always like wow i mean that guy is just so amazing yeah yeah speaking of the queens of stone age i don't know if you know mark lanigan is screaming oh, trees yeah, of course he just died. Hey, died today no way did five minutes before he came on one of my uh one of my best friends uh who's up in new york now um we used to go out like every night we go to this place called the uh, uh penguin which was a uh it's like the uh punk rock greaser diner if you will like mm-hmm. i don't even know how to like you know PBR, cheap shots, a lot of cocaine mm-hmm. um, <laughs> is, is, is sort of the best way to explain it. But they had a jukebox. And we'd, every time that we walk in there, it's like we'd walk over, drop in about five, 10 bucks, 5804, which was Queens of the Stone Age off of their, um, um, can't remember the name of the album now, but it's a red one. That's going to help you out. But um, anyways, I hadn't listened to him in a while. And then on Sunday, I was at work, which is rare for me. Um, Queens of the Stone Age showed up on a like, playlist not one that i was listening to but just sort of like self-generated like sort of a spotify thing and uh uh queens of stone age came on and as soon as it popped i'm like oh my god 5804 and it's like me and kurt would be in the middle of this place like air drumming because like dave girl was just popping at it so i sent kurt text and he was like he sent me pictures of like the red vinyl that he got for the album recently and all this other stuff he's a huge vinyl head and then just before you and i were supposed to get on he sends me a text and he's like yo mark lanigan just died i'm like what Damn. Away. Yeah. How did he die? You know, I guess it's probably not out yet. Well, he had, he had COVID last year or like the beginning of COVID. He ended up with COVID like 
bad, like in a coma, the whole nine yards. He ended up writing a book about it. He's written a couple of books. Yeah, I just and read his, I think it's his latest book, Sing Backwards and Weep. That was the second, second to last one. That was amazing. Okay. That was amazing. It was a great book. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So then he put one out that's that's more related to his experience with COVID, and it just came out um, oh, within the last six months. Okay. So I don't know if it's health-related health related or not, but I guess he had moved to Ireland, which I was unaware of. Um, and this was like 40 minutes before you and I came on. So there was just like the only thing that, that it said is the family was asking to respect their privacy. Yeah. So, wow. He knows with his backstory. Yeah, no kidding. It's amazing that he lasted as long as he did. <laughs> <laughs> Wow. I see you've got an athletic brewing there. Uh, they're a sponsor of the show. I, I, I mean, and you're a recovering alcoholic. So, I mean, I'm guessing that you don't have any issues with drinking an NA beer. It doesn't bother you. No. Um, you know, and it's funny because like beer is probably my biggest trigger point because of the fact that that's what I, that's what I ended up drinking more than anything else. Okay. Um, but the funny thing is, is like, I always liked the taste of it and I've always enjoyed, like I've always, I always liked the one thing that I enjoyed about having a beer other than when I was like, you know, hunting down 12 more of them after the fact. But um, I just, I didn't have a normal relationship with alcohol and I didn't have a background that was normal with it either. Um, so, but I do like the taste of beer. I mean, there is a, 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 a palate issue that happens with beer. And as a chef, I mean, I like, I like things that challenge my palate um, and make it work. You know, soda doesn't, soda doesn't do that. I've never been a fan of it anyways. Um, so, um, and it, it, you know, it sort of helps me it sort of helps me maintain uh, some social space for myself. And a lot of, a lot of my, a lot of my drinking besides sort of learned behavior um, was also like as a, a social protection. We touched on a little bit as far as with anxiety, but it also became a prop um, that allowed something between me and the, 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 the outside world a little bit. Um, it allowed, it, it allowed a little bit of protection for me. Just funny because I mean, people that might listen to this, like, oh wow, you know, he's easygoing, he's gregarious, and I'm like, I'm the exact opposite. Um, as a child, I was painfully shy, so this is this is more learned for me. Um, and then I did a, uh, I did five seasons of this uh, uh, docu series that uh, basically was what was as Charlotte was sort of growing in burgeoning food scene, and I was sort of stepping down as a like marquee chef and like treating treating my job is exactly what it was something that I was good at, but it, I didn't want it to become my identity anymore. Um, because that was all that I, that's all my life really consisted of was Mark as a chef. That's my identity. Um, but I did the same thing with skateboarding and a lot of other things. And I think it became easier to sort of see myself not as a whole, but just as this piece. Right. Um, so once I recognized some of these issues, uh, it became, it became evident that also Mark as a drinker was also it. That was sort of my identity. I mean, you know, I go all night, um, you know, and it was funny because there was a point, I guess is where we get dark. <laughs> there was a I love point. It. This is, this is my wheelhouse. <laughs> <laughs> there was, a, there was a point um, when I, when I used to drink that uh, the one thing I always stated was, I'm like, you know, sober Mark, drunk Mark, it's always the same Mark. And that was the one thing I prided myself on. I wasn't the guy that showed his ass or tried to start fights or do any of these other things. Um, not that I didn't have my moments, but for the most part, it was pretty even keel. Um, oddly presented as happy, of course, which is very odd. I mean, for somebody who was suffering clinically, you know, is clin clinically depressed, a 
right. taking a lot of depressants. Um, I managed to find, I think it's Tennessee Williams. It called it the, there's a click that happens when you're drinking and you're just looking for that click. And once that hits, it's just sort of warm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I always managed to maintain it. Um, I stayed, I drank, when I first started drinking, it was vodka. And it turned out that I was very good at drinking vodka. And that concerned me. Um, both my parents are alcoholics. My father, who's still alive, doesn't drink really anymore. My mother never had a healthy relationship with alcohol or really with anything. Um, so uh, I, I realized that, you know, I probably didn't want to, I don't want to become a vodka drinker because it was like what I call Polish crack. And I didn't want to being being Polish. I'm like, I don't need this. Uh, so I was like, I'll, I'll, I'll be a beer drinker because if I have a couple of them, it makes me sleepy. Um, and that didn't last very long, the, the sleepy part. And, uh, you know, and then I moved down South and I was never a huge fan of brown liquor until I got down here just about 20 years ago. Um, and then sort of discovered the, uh, the, 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 the intricacies and, and delicious flavors of bourbon and whiskey. Mm-hmm. Um, so I added those to my repertoire and still was a happy drunk until suddenly I wasn't. Um, and I started to realize that brown liquor was turning me into something I didn't like. So I took that off my, took that off my plate. And I mean, I would pick fights with, and not necessarily physical fights, but even just like, you know, psychic fights with, you know, loved ones over nothing. Right. Um, so, uh, I, uh, I, I took whiskey off the, uh, off the menu and just stuck with beer for a while and then started to recognize that the same thing happened when I was drinking beer. So the funny thing is, that's why I said I didn't really hit, I never really hit bottom um, when I quit drinking. But the reality is, I mean, you know, I mean, I showed up Easter Sunday after being out all night. I think I got home at around eight o'clock in the morning. I have two young children at the time. So you can imagine they were already up. So I kept rolling into the house, like just all rocked out from the night before, um, you know, uh, drinking and party favors. Uh, And that should have been enough to probably sort of wake me up, especially given my background and, and with, with, with what I went through with, with my mother and her relationships with both substance and not so great people. Um, but, uh, it, you know, it's like, there's all these small moments of bottoms that should have been enough for somebody who's supposed to be smart to click onto. But like I said, I'm, you know, for somebody who's smart, I'm pretty stupid. And one of my best <laughs> friends, LJ who works at the French laundry. Now I told my wife one time, he's like, you know, I, I can't do his voice very well, but he sounds just like Billy Bob Thornton, but he's yeah. like, half his size um sawed off little runt of a man um <laughs> he's a brilliant dude but he told my wife he goes you know he's just the stupidest he's the stupidest smart man i've ever met <laughs> we, we thought we, we thought that was kind of funny for its own right but i didn't realize uh exactly how on 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 the money that was you know until <laughs> later totally totally I'm curious, man, when you stopped drinking, did you use any sort of a program or anything, or did you just kind of do it on your own? What did that look no. like? So the funny, the, the, so the funny relationship with punk rock throughout my entire life, and the funny thing, I have to state, like, as a 52-year-old man, almost 52-year-old man, like, I don't listen to as much punk rock as, as I should, or as most people would assume. You know, especially when like, I think a lot of people, especially like when I just did a little thing about Henry Rollins's birthday, I think a lot of people assume like that's part of my running playlist. And it's right, like, right. my running playlist is like, that's pretty, it's pretty fucking wimpy. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I listen to, because I mean, I like it. I, I don't want anything to, so I don't really want anything getting in my way. So I like atmospheric style stuff. And I don't mean, you know, I listen to like 
it's white boy music. <laughs> oh, dude. I mean, you know, don't, lot, don't feel bad. Yeah. I've got Adele on my running playlist, man. So don't feel bad. I, I, I hear you. <laughs> I listen to, it's like a lot of Wilco and Avery brothers and iron and wine. I just like things that sort of set, uh, cinematically, you know, yeah. the background without really getting in the way. Sure. And I, and I, and I don't want anything like, I don't, I've had so much aggression in my life that I really don't need to add any more <laughs> to it at this point. Like I'm not out there to be pissed off i'm really running i'm I'm trying to get away from that not running away from just running more towards the happiness yes but um um, i forgot what what i was saying sorry my wife just walked in home from work no that's right hi wife (laughs) (laughs) she was trying to be quiet um (laughs) but uh um the uh i was getting ready to so it was right around thanksgiving time and uh I had been slowly doing some, some work on the house. We have, you know, they're, they're grown men, children now, but as, as, as young children, um, they had, they had the run of the house. Like, um, when I was growing up, it was very sort of, you know, on one side of the family, you didn't, you didn't really mess with things in the house and you definitely had to put things back. It was a, a very disciplined atmosphere. Um, and then, and I've always sort of treated stuff as such. I mean, I, I, I definitely had a lot of but enough poverty in my life where I'm pretty protective and I take care of things. Um, although I probably have too many things at times. Uh, so when we, when we had our kids, I mean, it was sort of one of the things is like, they had the run of the house. We didn't like, you know, you go here to do that. Like one thing that I think more than anything else, I loved when like my children and my nephews and their friends are over and they're running around the house yelling and screaming. And I don't care if I had been like, just got done working an 80 hour work week and felt like crap because it didn't have anything other than liquor, beer, coffee, cigarettes for a diet for like eight days straight. Um, and just, you know, really looking and feeling like death, but like the sound of children having fun at that level is like, to me, one of the greatest things mm. doesn't mean I was perfect with it all the time. There was definitely my days where was like, shut up yeah. um, but for the most part. And, you know, so, once the kids kind of got old enough and I started to recognize that I'd been neglecting so many things in my life, um, including just taking care of stuff around the house. So we started to, um, update the paint around the house. So I got the walls done really quick. Um, you know, got the walls in because, you know, you can paint, we have a fairly open floor plan in the downstairs of the house and you can, you can really make a, a quick, large impact just by changing your wall color. But like the details of woodwork, right? Nobody likes to paint trim. Um, so I kind of put it off. I had the walls done, but the trim really needed to get, like it all needed to get done. And so we were getting up on coming around to Thanksgiving time. As a chef, um, you would expect that if you get one holiday a year where everybody's sort of in the family hosts, we host Thanksgiving because mm-hmm. it's a food holiday. So it only right. makes sense for a chef to do it. So we had, we had, um, my wife's family, um, who all live down here, they were all coming over for Thanksgiving. And I really wanted to make sure that the trim work was done. And she really wanted to have it done, have the house, you know, looking done, being presentable for, for guests. So, uh, I started the, uh, the arduous tasks of actually like the hard, the hard work. And that became a metaphor later, like not too long after for my recovery. Right. Mm. Um, so I got home that day from work. It was a, uh, a Saturday and I had found out, I think it was through Instagram that night flight had a channel. So I don't remember if you, if you, if you're old enough to remember night flight, yeah. 
but Nightflight was, you know, a precursor MTV. Um, that's where you saw videos and it only came on Friday nights, Saturday nights, whatever it was, like after midnight. Um, and like, that was the first place or the first time that I ever saw like a punk band, like actually saw one. I just remember sitting there and I think it was like, they were talking about, and it was a whole episode that was dedicated to punk rock at the time. So they were like, you know, there's bands like the Sex Pistols and the Dead Kennedys and they're anarchists. And I heard Antichrist and as a, you know, 13, 13 year old Catholic boy, uh, <laughs> that scared the shit out of me. <laughs> you know? And of course, I come to realize later on that they meant, they meant anarchists, but whatever. Um, so <laughs> I was super excited to see that they had like a, a channel. And then on top of it is like, so I, 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 I pull it up on there and I, I pay for the subscription immediately. I think it was something ridiculously cheap, like five bucks a month or whatever. And I'm clicking through it. I'm like, Oh my God, like the uh, rise and fall of Western civilization, all like all these punk and hardcore documentaries and, uh, and movies and shit that I like had heard about, but never saw, or some of them that I haven't seen since I was 15. And so I was like, Oh shit. Like this is, this is, I know what I'm doing for the rest of the weekend. I'm going to watch this stuff and I'm going to paint the house. So I put it on and I was like, I went to go grab a beer because it was the next thing to do. And I'm like, and I'd, rec- I'd come to recognize I owned my own restaurant at one point. The one thing I noticed when I was there, I, that was the only time that I ever drank at work. And I realized that once I had a beer in me or a shot in me, um, my intensity level went to shit. Like my, my drive, my focus, my ability, everything just sort of went out the window. So I already knew that if I had a beer, I'd end up having more than one beer. And the, the trim work wouldn't get done. I'd eventually just, you know, or turn sloppy. So I was like, you don't get to have a beer to get done painting today. You know, I was like, you're going to, you have to finish this and you can have it. So I, uh, I got done with, I got done with that night. And it's so funny because the whole time I'm just thinking about how good that beer is going to taste now that I put this work in and I got done and I really only wanted, like, I wanted vanilla ice cream. So I had vanilla ice cream and I was like, I'm going to wait till I finish this whole fucking thing before I have a beer. And the thing is, I couldn't remember the last time I didn't have a drink. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, well over a decade, probably without taking a day off from drinking. That's how normal it had gotten. And again, I was a lot of people, they'll think like leaving Las Vegas, uh, Nicolas Cage, like that. <laughs> kind of drunk. Not every not all alcoholism is a personal disease. And so is a recovery. So that's yes. sort of to answer your question. So um, my experience was as a high functioning alcoholic, um, and even, even my relationship with alcoholism now that I'm far enough into my sobriety, I recognize that it was more, it was not, some people think addict and it's like, you know, that sort of chemical dependency. And that was part of it, but that wasn't really my driving forces. Like there's, as I'm discovering the last year and a half, there's more, more trauma and social anxieties and things like that that came into play. And the alcoholism was sort of a secondary issue. It's not to say that I'm not, not an alcoholic, but it sort of helped me color because I never felt like saying I'm an alcoholic, at least made it easy to recognize I had a drinking problem, but it didn't really, I realized that it rang hollow every time I said it Mm -hmm. because I knew that there was something more to it than just that, at least Mm. my understanding and my, how I sort of make a, 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 a difference cognitively, um, between, between things. And I don't want to get too philosophical, but I was just starting to pull up a different. No, 
I, I totally get it. I totally get it. Like for me, I thought drinking and alcoholism was my problem. And mm -hmm. I thought if I quit drinking, my problems are going to go away. But for me, alcohol was the answer to my, my problems. You know, it was the, the temporary solution, you know, right. and I had all this other shit going on in my head, but I wasn't really w willing to deal with. And I was throwing alcohol on top of it as the answer, you know, yeah. and, and, and it wasn't, Sure, I, I was I was drinking too much, but that wasn't the problem. I had to take drinking away and then dig deeper to find out what the real problem was. So uh, my my problem my drinking was a problem, but it wasn't the problem. Right. Is, right. I think is probably the best way to put it. Right. Um so I've uh um you know, as I basically and that's been sort of the origin story, and people ask you, like, you know, like, well, what was it like? And I'm like, it was as boring as watching paint dry. Um, <laughs> because really that's what it got down to. But I realized after like so I'm doing at that point, I was doing this documentary series called Order Fire. And um, so we would we once a month, we'd have um, our seasons ran about uh, seven months on, on the average. And we would do it's and it's like a it's a web based documentary still up online. And once a month, we would have these screening parties at a local brewery. And uh, after the we did we did one and I and I was like, I didn't really want to do it. I didn't want to do these the, the screening parties because Sundays were my day to be with my family. And after so many years of like, there was a one thing it was like, I dude, I'd go out drinking all night, every fucking night of the week, Friday, I'd get out of work and I'd be scrambling to be done by two 30. And then from two 30 to about five 30, I would go like, I'd go someplace and would hardcore binge drink, like three bloody Marys, two shots, five beers. And then like, people were like, Oh, the band's coming on at six. Like, nah, dude, I got to go home. Pat myself on the back. Like I'm a family man because I was <laughs> right. Home you know shit based like absolutely not present um it was so bad but um so i got really protective of 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 my sundays once i got out of the industry i wasn't sober at this point but once i sort of stopped being that chef guy where i wasn't going out and i was just like you know, i mean i'm just gonna have a couple beers at home um and it was funny because it's like it looked like a lot less but it really wasn't mm, yeah. you know all said and done like when I started counting the cans, like, I'm like, yeah, you're not really cutting down though. Um, I mean, yes, I was, but it still was nowhere near like a, a healthy relationship with alcohol amount. This was, you know, college Saturday night, binge drinking Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday afternoon. So, um, you know, once I, so we're doing these documentary, these documentary things. So I knew at some point that I, you know, I was going to start drinking again. And then my, um, had a family member, who was going, who went sober at that time. And it was still relatively new. And I didn't want this individual to experience Thanksgiving sober alone, which is also a drinking holiday. So, you know, it was normal for, it was normal for me to start drinking once I got things going on. So I didn't have a buzz, like I'd be sweating drunk by the time I walked out of the kitchen to my house, we weren't hosting at that time. We'd go over to my uh, in-laws and I get there and it'd be like, bloody Mary, bloody Mary, beer, beer, maybe a glass of wine with dinner and then probably a cocktail to finish things off and then some coffee to sober up for the ride home. Right. So, uh, I was like, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to out of solidarity. I'm not going to drink until after Thanksgiving. So that way this individual doesn't have to experience, it. get to the house, open the door. This individual greets me bloody Mary with a bloody Mary in this individual's hand. I'm like, so then I was, I, I stayed sober initially out of spite because I was so <laughs> fucking pissed off. <laughs> Um, so then I gave myself, once I got through that, I gave myself permission. I'm like, so once we're going to do one of these things, I know I'm going to have a beer. Um, so, you know, you can do it. And the funny thing is the minute I gave myself permission to drink, never really wanted to again. Right. Like the yeah. power went right. So, um, 
somewhere along the way though it's like i was talking with a bartender friend of mine who was trying to go sober at the time and i went i went i mean i went public with my sobriety early and very loud but um i still was having a hard time sort of parsing and navigating all the all the stuff what ended up happening was is um this uh bartender friend of mine was like well what i've done is i've allowed myself a limit so i can have up to three ounces a day because i have to taste and do all these other things and i'm like well as a chef that makes sense because it's always been the lie alcohol tells you is like you know well, you can't quit right now because the holidays are coming up or you can't quit right now because you're going to have to do this wine taste. And you can't quit right now because insert, you know, excuse number A, B, C, D all the way through. Right. Um, so I, uh, I gave myself the three ounce rule. I gave myself the three ounce rule as well and rarely had taken that, like had used it ever. So, um, basically it kept that you know, as my back pocket, but what ended up happening was, is as my day started to climb, it was like when I quit smoking cigarettes and like, I thought the money would be the the deciding factor when I was tracking it. It's how quick I got to a thousand cigarettes, not smoke and how fucking gross that was sounding because you smoke a pack a day, right? Yeah. Not 20 or 40 if you're two pack a day. So I sort of did the same thing with my drinking. It became a high, it became a, a high score thing for me. Mm. You know, it's like, how many days can you go? How many days can you go? Um, so that kind of, that got me through the the first year because, you know, I like, I couldn't remember going one day, let alone two, let alone three. So it just became sort of strong. Um, and when I went, when I went loud with it immediately is because I wanted to be held accountable for, for my behavior, because I knew very well that I could go out and have a drink someplace, you know, some little, like one of my favorite little hideout bars and I'd get served and nobody would be the wiser. And as long as I kept it in dark there, I'd be able to lie. So I figured if I went, if I went loud and like, and proud on the social media about it, I'd probably still be able to get a, a drink if I wanted it, but they wouldn't do it without like, like, there would be absolutely zero possibility of no repercussions. They would break my balls sure. because my personality demands that kind of stuff. You know I mean? It's like, <laughs> I'm, I'm not a, I'm not a for everybody person. So even my friends know, I mean, I'm like, I'm, I'm held to a very high standard because I'm sort of, I, I speak my mind. I say my thing. Um, so when they have an opportunity to knock me down a couple of pegs and put me where I belong, I absolutely relish that. So I figured this was the only way to keep myself honest. Um, and, you know, I mean, it's been about five years I've had, I think back in October, I had to go up to Brooklyn to pick my son up. My oldest, he was moving back. He went up there for a year, moved up there at the beginning, like right at the worst time during the pandemic, we moved to bed and he was up there for a year. And then I went to go pick him up. We went to Albany to see my dad. Um, not the best relationship with him, but we had to go visit him. Imagine Archie Bunker, but far, far, just, I don't even know how to explain it. I mean, I love the guy to death, but I don't, I, I can't, I can't even get into it with on that one. Not because I don't want to, but it's just a whole other thing. Um, and while we were there, my son was like, he goes, I've never been to Boston. I want to go to Boston. And I'm like, well, we can't go to Boston. There's like a nor'easter going on. I started to come up with all these reasons, and I got a, I got a, a 50k, you know, on Sunday, and I'm like losing. I'm like, as I'm sitting here, I'm like, my son just asked me to go do something with him, and I'm coming up with reasons not to go. Mm-hmm. Immediately got online, booked a booked a hotel. Um, we went to Boston in the middle of a nor'easter. My father gave me uh, gave me some money. He was like, hey, you know, go out and have a nice dinner while you're there. And we went to uh, Legal Seafoods in Boston, and it's a tourist trap, but fine dining. And, you know, so me and my son walk in there for lunch and he was like, Hey pop, he goes, let's, let's get, let's get a glass of wine together. So I had a glass of wine with my son and I was curious to see what that was going to be like, because it was the first time that I had allowed myself, you know, besides just like 
going to the brewery where we did things, I might take a, a taste. And when I say a taste, it's like they'd pour two ounces and I would take a taste and there'd be plenty left in the glass. Um, and I had to sort of, once I got, I, so we got done with the glass of wine and blah, blah, blah. And then we went out for tacos the, that night or the next night with a friend of mine. So we went to this place at the, um, the guys from the Mighty Mighty Boston Zone oh. um, in uh, uh, just north of Cambridge, uh, like right towards the Chinatown area. And I, I think it's called Red Door Tacos. Um, and one of my best friends lives like right upstairs from it. So we went over there. My son got a beer. My, uh, my, my uh, best friend got a beer. One of my good friends got a beer. And I was like, I'm, I'm sitting there and I'm like, well, I mean, I'm on vacation. I can have a beer. And I was just like, give me a Topo Chico. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, it was interesting because I had to, I was having a hard time navigating around what had just happened because I'm like, did my high score just go to zero? Am I still sober? Like all these things I'm like, I had to deal with. And I recognize, you know, my sobriety is, is, is my, it's my sobriety. Mm-hmm. It's not, I, I, it's not open for um, anybody else to interpret. It's open for other people to have conversations about by all means. I mean, I love when people ask hard questions about it because sometimes we don't have the wherewithal to do it for ourselves. We need people to ask those questions to hold our, to hold us accountable, or at least make sure that we're doing the work properly. Right. Um, and I found like I got through, um, we went through the holidays and it was like my wife and I had been having, like, I've been having a small glass of wine at night with my wife not enough to even really feel a buzz. And, and the reason I bring this up is because it's very, it's an odd sensation for me to have a normal, what I feel, what a normal relationship is with, with anything, you know, whether it's what I'm doing, how I work, who I'm in love with, what I'm eating, what I'm drinking, like all these things. So it's just, it's a very odd sensation for me to, to, to be in that, to be in that. I've never, like, I've never seen it. Like I've, don't recall seeing my mother sober. Um, you know, I don't like my, my childhood to me smells like stale beer and cigarettes. And I mean, it, 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 it's a, it's a weird place it inhabits. So I've, I've kind of enjoyed like having that. And I, and I sort of put myself on this thing where I was thinking about it the other day and I'm like, well, how long is this going to last? And I'm like, you know what, we'll go through until February and then that's it. And then I'll, you know, I gave myself a time frame where like, I'll have to cut it off for a while. We'll be through the dark ages as it were, like, you know, the, like the dark winter months here will be gone. It'll be a lot more time after work to go out for a run or do all, you know, do things where it doesn't feel like you should be in bed. So I was like, okay. And that's what, you know, it was useful for that, but I'm, I'm sort of ready to, to move on from that anyways. And I feel like the couple extra pounds that I've added on has been between, you know, a four ounce pour of red wine and chocolate donuts. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you're right, man. Everyone's sobriety looks different and, uh, going into a 12 step program or something isn't the way for everybody. You know, I'm glad that it's there for the people that Mm -hmm. are successful with it, but it's not the way for everybody. Um, and I can appreciate that, man. Did you do, did you use 12 step or did you do it yourself? Yeah, I I went to a 12. I mean, actually my story is, uh, so I quit drinking on my own, um, mm-hmm. and then, uh, continued to smoke weed and pop pills and whatever else came my way for another couple years. And then eventually kind of spun out of control with that and then found myself in a 12 step. So I haven't had a drink for six years, but yeah, I'm only sober for the last couple of years or so from Good. everything else. So yeah, everybody's, everybody's story is a little bit different and, you know, with the 12 step thing, um, you know, I take what's applicable to me in my life and I use mm-hmm. that and I just, just discard the rest. You know, yeah. um, I used well, to be, I think- a, no, oh, go ahead. Sorry. 
I used to you be this got- huge Bruce Lee fan, and uh, uh-huh. that's that's how he created his martial art called Jeet Kune Do, is he took yeah. pieces of boxing, he took pieces of wrestling and karate and the kung fu he learned to make his own style that works best for him and his body type. And I just mm-hmm. kind of took that philosophy, and I used that with not only my sobriety, but shit, everything in life. Right on, right on. Um, you know, it's funny. I've got um, some of my friends that are like in my recovery friends, as I call them, um, some other chefs and whatnot. A lot of them, well, enough of them are in 12 step. Um, and I, I, I didn't, I didn't do, I did not do 12 step because I didn't think it was necessarily for me or not for me. It's just never like, it never dawned on me to go and do all that because I've always been more of a self-starter self-doer type thing anyways. Mm-hmm. But the funny thing is, is that, and this is why like, no matter what anybody says, say bad about 12 steps, because there's, you know, there's always people that got something to say where, Oh, well, I'm not religious. And they don't, it means that they haven't really, they haven't really understood what it's about because, you know, if it's, if it's a roll of toilet paper, that's your higher power. That's a roll of toilet paper. That's your higher power. But for some odd reason, that part gets lost on people because they just hear this higher power thing and automatically think of a Christian God and not, totally. you, know, you could be God, you could be your higher power if you want it to be. Um, but, um, and having discussions with some of my sobriety friends, it's, there's an intrinsic, I think, path that's in 12 step. That's, that's, that's right. Um, that there's, there's elements about, well, actually at, at, at every step, there's something that needs to be done for anybody that's been uh, addicted to substances and to fix themselves, their relationships with themselves and their relationships with everything around them, because it really, for and I'm sure there's more to it, but I mean, for me specifically, you know, it's, it's about, it's about relationships, no matter what it is, no matter what it's with or who it's with. Um, and that includes yourself and that includes the substances. Um, and I discovered that sort of my, my recovery, I call it a salvage job, not so much as a recovery because I realized that I was finding bits and pieces of me that had been lost or gone, or, you know, I figured forever. Um, some pieces will never come back. Um, just because that's, you know, that's the nature of it. Um, but, uh, I found that it inadvertently was mimicking a lot of what goes on at 12 steps. Although maybe step two might happen at step four, but like all the things were there for it. Um, so it's, you know, I, I think that, I think even people that don't, that get sober, that don't do 12 steps still do 12 steps. They just don't recognize, you know, yeah. yeah. and here's the thing. It doesn't matter what it like. If you have a problem with substance, alcohol, abuse, drugs, whatever, you know, whatever it takes to get you healthy is that fucking rocks. Yeah. You know, that's what you need to do. How you go about doing it, as long as it's not like harming anybody around you or continuing harming yourself, knock yourself out. Totally. Like when I quit smoking, I quit smoking cold turkey um, and uh, never went back. And, you know, I don't I don't think that quitting uh smoking and like substituting it out with uh, uh vaping is a great idea and i would like to me it's just as it's sort of just as disgusting personally but if it works for you if that's what's going to get you to the if that's what's going to get you to the end to the end goal do it do you it. know whatever it takes yeah. you're not hurting anybody but yourself but you're hurting yourself less and if yeah. it's about harm reduction i'm all for it 100 percent 
Yeah, man. Um, and another thing you mentioned when you quit drinking was getting into pottery. And I can kind of relate to that too, because when I quit drinking, I got into painting, like abstract painting. I've always been sort of an artist and like the sketch and paint and, but I got into it, man. And that became, uh, almost the new habit. And I poured all my energy into it. And that first year that I got sober, I must've painted 400 paintings, like a mm -hmm. ton. And I'm guessing it was the same for you. You just kind of turned that energy into something artistic. And, you know, so you're yeah. able to stay present and work on this piece that you're working on, but you're also working through things in your head at the same time. Yeah. And the pottery predated the sobriety, which is like hilarious because I'll go back and look at some of these posts that happened before. it. Um, and you know, this, the, the, the obvious metaphor, like when you're throwing clay is that you have to center it on the wheel. Otherwise, you know, it's all over the place and your form doesn't work. And it was like, it was exactly the metaphor, especially where I was at that time of my life. It was exactly what I needed. Like I needed some centering. Um, I'd always called my, I'd, I'd always, you know, when, whenever I was talking with people and I always proclaimed, well, I'm a Buddhist, I'm a practicing Buddhist. And the key word is practicing because I wasn't really a performing Buddhist in, in, the, in, in the aspect where it's like I had worked my way through some of the precepts and I tried to adhere to certain things and never all at once and, and nor do you necessarily have to right but the funny one was is that as I started doing some meditation in the morning and to, I picked up journaling um, and again this is before I went sober but started working through this idea of intentional living and, and, and having some purpose having some intent because I realized that my life is like with with all this amazing stuff around me and a, a tremendous family, highly supportive. The fact that, you know, my, my, my marriage survived decades of me being a drunk idiot mm -hmm. um, is a testament to my wife's strength, but also like coming out of it. And I'm just like, I like, it was like, it, it felt like, it, it felt like I described my childhood. Like my life felt like that anyways. I'm like, how did I get here? Like you were, you knew better, you knew better. And then here you are. So like when I started, when I first got doing, when I first started doing pottery and then that sort of brought me back into Buddhism. So I'm sitting, you know, I get up every morning. I'm like, you gotta get up every morning. You gotta, you gotta be intentional. You gotta have practice just 20 minutes each morning, just sit. And that's, I mean, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a Zen Buddhist. Um, and basically what I practice is just sitting quietly. Right. Mm. Um, and once I started getting, once I started to let, stop letting my mind wander and started recognizing that these, these things happen inside of us and, and we don't have control over it. And the only thing we have control is how we react to it or how we attach to it. And um, I started to recognize that I needed to, to learn how to let that go. And it was, it was, it was interesting because I, as I got through it, I started to recognize that, like, I've never, like, even when I was doing this, when I was younger, you know, it's like, I was like, this young bohemian when I was 25, 26, like, you know, drove out West and like, you know, hung out in Arcadia, went rock climbing and came back. And I'm, you know, I've got this like collective of friends that are writers and musicians. And it was sort of like, you know, well, you're more like Kerouac. No, you're more like Burroughs. You're kind of like Ginsburg. And like, you know, we, we fancied ourselves as this sort of like next great generation. And the thing was, is I really just sort of pretended like I was only going through the motions, although I under like there was something about it that transferred over from like the Rollins Nietzsche to the Buddhist mark that made sense. Like the, the leap was not a leap. It was just it was the natural connection of dots. You know, it was my Forrest Gump. It was just like this happened and then this happened. Mm -hmm. So um, once I, once I recognized that, like the one thing I'd never actually done was given myself the opportunity to do this clear minded. Like what was I like? 
I knew I needed something, but I didn't know that I needed something, but I recognized that that was a hurdle. And I think that was sort of the beginning for me was like, you know, maybe you should give this, maybe you should give this not drinking thing. Cause you recognize all these other things you really just sort of lay in for a little while and see what goes on. Like I said, so that was like, you know, the first couple of days of my sobriety, that's what it was, was all these, you know, I'm, I'm going to get this done. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to be intentional and whatnot. And that was, it was wonderful for like three or four days until Thanksgiving. And then it just became about spite. <laughs> I'm so fucking, <laughs> I'm so petty at times. <laughs> Did you ever like hammer down and figure out like what the real reason was for your, your drinking? Did you, did you come oh, to God. any sort of conclusions or? Yeah. I mean, you know, it's like, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a typical child of the, of the seventies. My parents divorced. Um, and it was, you know, I was young seven, I was like right around 1973. I don't remember like, I don't have very fun, Like I don't have a lot of memories of my parents together and the few memories that still hang around and I have a pretty decent memory. Like they're all sort of like violent um, or, you know, argumentative, angry. There's not really like, I don't recall, I don't recall a loving relationship between my parents. I mean, they, they were together right out of high school. Um, my father went to Vietnam. He, like my, my mother was pregnant with my sister. Um, and, you know, there's question whether like, he, like if he was the father or not, which I mean, if, if you were to see my sister's not alive now, but if I show you a picture of my sister, you'd be like, yeah, they're not related, <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. So there's all these things like my parents weren't, they were not prepared. I mean, they were the same age as my oldest son right now. He is not fucking ready to be a parent. Right, yeah. He is nowhere near the maturity level to, to bring another human being in the world and be responsible for him. And my parents weren't either, you know? And, and I, and I say this because of the fact that it's like, Sometimes when I write about it, I think people look at it like, oh, he's pissed at his parents. I'm not like, I, I, I really try to empathize with where they were at. Mm-hmm. They had like, they didn't know what the fuck they were doing, yeah. you know? And they were, I mean, this is like, I was conceived at Woodstock and it's like, you know, there's like, my mother's this sort of like bohemian easy rider type person who's tough as nails and an antagonist. I mean, you know, I mean, I definitely have my, I'm wired like my mother, but my father's kind of like, you know, this sort of loud mouth sports car driving womanizing semi-racist son of a bitch you know and it's just like i don't how the fuck they ended up together other than like he was really good looking and she was super like she looked like Cher when she was younger you know it's like Mm -hmm. other than that like they didn't like i don't see like nobody can see how these guys were together so it's like you know i remember when my parents split up and i mean like we walked out the family home if you can call it that like it was i mean it was brutal it's the only time i really remember my seeing my father cry but the thing is i don't think he was crying because the relationship was done i think he was crying because he felt rejected you know what i mean and i, and, and I didn't know it at the time but it stuck with me because it's one of the few memories i have of, of, of that particular of that particular time frame in my life and it's like you know, through most of my childhood, I mean, my father was, you know, he, he drank. I mean, he came home one night, he had gotten into a bar fight. Somebody tried to slice his neck. Like he had stitches all the way down like this. I woke up one time, there's a house party going on. I'm like drinking with adults. When I say drinking, I mean like slamming old Ezra and like, just like, I, I went fucking wild on the drinking. Um, and my mother's side was the same thing. And the thing is, that's how they dealt with shit, you know? So it's like, it, but the funny part was, is like when I, got done with skateboarding with my with my shop and was getting ready to go to college like I started writing these very like Henry Rollins style pieces you know and it was just I mean it, it, it's so fucking embarrassing but it's your typical like 18 year old you know it's me against the world type shit it was like you know Planet Joe it was like that it was all about like me and my fucking boots it's like a walking man thing it's like 
I'm so fucking stoic and dark and like <laughs> disciplined and the world doesn't know what's going like it was pathetic. But the thing was that was my mindset and it was like, you know, I looked at I looked at people that drank and mind you, like I had plenty of experience with drinking myself at that point. But I was coming out of uh, I was coming out of the Syracuse hardcore scene at the time, coming back to Utica, and it was like um, bands like Earth Crisis and and whatnot, which they're still around. There's an odd connection with Earth Crisis and a couple of my friends. I'm friends with the guys, or at least a few of the guys in the band, but there's a whole other connection with that band and me. Um, but like, like these guys were hardcore, straight edge kids. Like it was everything that you've ever heard about you know, like New York, hardcore, straight edge, Boston, hardcore, straight edge, Syracuse was the same sort of way, probably a little more um, embracing of people than outside scenes, but still pretty aggro. And, you know, like I was not straight edge when I hung out with them, but I also didn't give them shit for doing that, you know? And it wasn't like, I was like, I wasn't drinking a lot. I was doing a lot of psychedelics, but like I was smoking cigarettes, drinking coffee and doing psychedelics. I mean, that was primarily my life. So when I came back to Utica and, you know, it's like, you know, I'm watching my mom drink and just thinking how weak that looks. And the funny part is, is, you know, I like, I knew better and I still ended up finding, you know, doing all that stuff. But, um, I mean, you know, my mother, my mother experienced, I mean, she experienced a violent life. Um, I've, I've seen my mother brutalized by men in ways that nobody wants to see their mother brutalized. Um, and you know, I didn't, the funny thing is, is like her and I, when she was still alive, we would have discussions where I was like, oh, we wouldn't change, you know, it's like, what a wild life, what a crazy life. We wouldn't change anything for the world. And like, we normalize this shit in ways that like, you know, we just, like, I think we felt like, oh, well, you know, didn't bother us. We got through it. It was, it was shitty at the time. It's like, I lived in my fucking mother's Honda with her for like three weeks under a bridge because we couldn't like the man she was married to, like, was looking to kick her ass, you know, it's like, like, it was just, it was, it was, it was not good. Um, so to, uh, uh, you know, to sit as a, as a young adult and, and have like conversations with your mother and we're just kind of like patting ourselves on the back as survivors. But the thing was, is like, I don't know that we even knew what trauma meant, let alone how to deal with it. You know? And I started like, I, I, I think I started unpacking all this. My wife and I were out hiking one day and I told her, it's a memory of um, my sister and I, when we were living in Florida and my mother was getting beaten by my stepfather and we went running out of the house at like, it was like, like, like three in the morning type shit. You know, it's like they had come home from wherever they were out partying and shit just went sideways and it went sideways. And I mean, it was, it was like the bad kind of sideways, like seeing your mother get her arm broken and her nose broken and shit like that. And it's like, you know, I mean, I pissed my pants. I mean, that kind of violence is fucking horrible. So my sister and I go running out of the house and we're like yelling at the top of our lungs. But the thing was like my, like my memory of it was I couldn't yell louder than a whisper, like whether my voice was hoarse or, you know, whatever, like I couldn't yell loud enough. Um, But the funny thing is, is like, when I say the funny thing is like the memory of that is so succinct. And I think that even though I always kind of remembered it being there when it came up, when, when her and I were walking, it really started to unravel the next layer of, of stuff. And I didn't like, I never used the word trauma before. Like I didn't, you know what I mean? I didn't, it wasn't, it wasn't part of my lexicon. There was no reason for it. Um, and, and I started to see the, and I started to see the metaphor for like those, you know, I'm sure everybody's had those types of dreams where they try to run, but they can't 
get into like a, like it, it feels like you can't get out of the starter block position. You're almost running on all fours and your legs don't have like they're tired. I don't know if anybody else has experienced that. Oh, totally. Like you're in quicksand or something. Yeah. You know, and, and that's how it felt in real life. But I think that, you know, there was so much related to that. And it's so funny that running would unpack all that for me, you know, <laughs> and, and, and of course it would. And again, like I said, I'm a fucking cliche and, you know, there's a whole publishing industry of, of white guys that grew up <laughs> listening to punk rock music that became addicts that found, you know, some inner peace through trail running. And it's, you know, and like at any other time in my life, I'd be like, well, I gotta go find something else to do. Like, Oh, if they're going to do that, then I'll hang glide through it or whatever. You know, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's so nice to like, you know, to be in a place where I'm at peace with, with that. And actually like, there's a, like a legitimate sense of happiness. It doesn't by, by all means, my life is still, still far from perfect. I'm, I make mistakes every day. I'm, I'm still bumbling my way through relationships, but um, you know, I think getting, getting clean and sober and getting into running is, is, is one thing and getting to unpack all this other shit in enough time to hopefully make sure that I can properly repair any damage that I've done to my own sons. I mean, I try to speak very honestly about it. They see my posts. I speak, you know, I try to speak honest. I try to make sure when they ask questions and I don't judge. I mean, they're at the age where they're drinking, they're trying weed, they're doing all these other things. And it's not my job to tell them not to do it. I, it's my job to, re, to remind them that they, you know, that there are genetic predispositions for certain things and to be aware. Um, but by all means, I mean, now is the time when they're young, they're supposed to experience all this stuff. And it's funny because I was talking about my youngest, um, my, my children are, I, I, we could do a whole podcast on the di- on the dichotomies of my kids, <laughs> but my youngest has this like fantastic little life um, in a way that like I'm jealous of. And not that my oldest doesn't I mean he's, he's done so many cool things. Um, but my youngest, like, you know, he, he's, he's not even 19 and he's like he traveled to France and then he went to Italy recently and, you know, he's got an old, he's got an old truck that he recently, well, it's old and it's a 1993, but it's funny. It's like, you know, that's an old truck now into my mind, <laughs> old trucks from the seventies. Um, and he lives in a lake house and we went up to finally go visit like this lake house that he's living on or living in. And, um, I come rolling in and it's like, it's fucking huge bag of weed on the dining room, like on the kitchen table. And I say huge bag of weed. I'm not like, Oh my God, there's a bag of weed there. It's like, you know, it's a big, it's like, you know, two Big Macs worth of, of worth, <laughs> worth of weed in a bag. And, uh, and then he shows us his bedroom and there's like a bottle of fricking um, uh, bourbon in his, in his closet and whatnot. And then I was like, you're not smoking cigarettes. Are you like out of all the things going on? It's like, please don't <laughs> like, I don't, that's the one thing I don't want him to ever start. Right, like, right. I, I can't believe I let myself smoke. It's so gross. <laughs> it's no. so gross. And I'm like, I can't believe I paid. I can't believe I, I can't believe I paid so much money. Yeah. for something that's so bad for me like yeah. and, and I should, i'm like i should have known better and yeah. i was like eh, whatever yeah well we both should have known better <laughs> and a lot of a lot of different things and that's just the I way think that's it, gonna be that's gonna be on my tombstone dude i should have known better i'm a slow learner and uh it's unfortunate but that's that's just how it is man it sounds like rollins kind of gave you nietzsche that's who he kind of yeah. introduced you to was that kind of the big thing for you yeah. that, that you took away from Rollins because I remember the big thing that I took away from reading his stuff was he introduced me to the writer Thomas Wolfe mm-hmm. and I ended up reading all of his stuff and becoming completely obsessed with Thomas Wolfe but it sounds like that's kind of the one thing that you almost took away from that or yeah like, I mean was the next I mean, evolution 
Rollins, well, Rollins, I mean, you know, when I wrote that post on there, it's like, it, it, by no small means, I mean, he's sort of the, uh, you know, when you're, you have your childhood, right? And then you become a young adult, you sort of get into your own. And then like, there's that whatever that is. And like, for me, that was like, like, like God's finger, like hitting the freaking uh, uh, the router, like I was mm-hmm. online. Like mm-hmm. he, he said the word Nietzsche and I went online. Mm-hmm. I didn't know what it was, but the idea of that, which does not kill you, makes you stronger. Like, of course, to somebody who suffered trauma, didn't even know what the fuck it was. Of course yeah. that would speak to me. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Of course it would. But it took me decades to even recognize sort of all of that. But I mean, you know, God, I mean, I, I'm, I'm not like, I'm not a fanboy for, for too many people. Like I, I appreciate I appreciate so many people, but there's very few, like, I don't, I don't, I don't hero worship people, maybe probably Muhammad Ali and evil can evil um, without a doubt. I've always been like, <laughs> you know, um, I mean, they're the perfect archetype. Um, and then, you know, I don't like Rollins is the only other dude who I think I even got like weird when I finally met him at a hardcore show and was able to like go up there. Like I'm rarely drawn to go like, Oh, look, there's a famous person, you know, yeah. Bill Murray would be one more. And I actually ran into Bill Murray in Charleston and he was walking around with uh, 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 Lewis Black. Oh, wow. And walking, it was like, we knew that because like a bunch of my friends had like, I've got like, my friends would be at Charleston Food and Wine and the years that I didn't go and they'd send me pictures of them at a party with Bill Murray. And I'm like, fuck you guys. Because like, <laughs> I want, like, I've always wanted a Bill Murray story. Of course, yeah. We go down to do, we go down to do uh, uh, Charleston Food and Wine and like the city of Charlotte paid for a bunch of us to go down and they paid for um, my documentary uh company to go down not mine but the one that i was involved with i was part of um and you know that was like the whole thing is like we 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 gotta find fucking like we have to find bill murray for mark and i'm getting ready to get out of there and it's like i gotta drive home and like i'm already thinking all right if i leave and i'm I'm like you ever seen the goldbergs the tv show the goldbergs all right well well there's a tv show called the goldbergs and there's like the father is the type of guy that like will leave before like the hockey game's over and end up missing like the once in a lifetime shot. Yeah, that's me. He's my spirit. Animal. <laughs> I'm like, I don't want to deal with lines and traffic because it's inefficient. So I'll fucking leave before like the encore comes on and be like, let's go beat the traffic. I'm such an old man. Yeah. So, um, I was like, kind of, I was like, guys, I'm going to get out of here. Like, I want to get out of here before everybody starts to bounce out. And on top of it, I was already thinking about this spot back home. I was like, I just wanted some ramen. So, um, I'm walking and I get to this corner and I just, and I've got my earbuds on and I'm like, I'm hauling ass. Like, I don't know if you've ever seen the chef walk, but we're like, we, we don't walk slow. <laughs> Imagine fast hiking in the city. That's me. Okay. So I'm like, I'm trucking, trucking, trucking. I turn to look and I see Bill Murray and I see him with uh, Lewis Black and I see them with two women. And the, there was a whole conversation that went on where it's like, I see you seeing me and I see you seeing me with like family stuff. And I'm hoping, you know, and it's like, I'm hoping that you understand this stranger not to come talk to me. And I was just kind of like, but he didn't like put out an aura where I was like, don't do it. Didn't shake his head. It was just real quick and passing. It was just kind of like gave him the freaking, you know, the head nod a little bit and just kept walking like too cool to even speak to you anyways. And as soon as I got out, like, out the corner, <laughs> I called, I called, I called my, uh, my partner up for the, for thinking, like, dude, I just saw Bill Murray. And he goes, Did you say hi. And I was like, no, I couldn't. He was with, you know, he was with his wife or girlfriend or whatever. And I'm like, I didn't want to be that dude. Yeah. <laughs> but with, with Henry Rollins, like I would, like, I don't care where he's at. I would like in a heartbeat, like I would chase him down and be, like, oh my god, oh my god. <laughs> because I mean, you know, it's funny. I mean, I oh man, like 
you know, you hear people say all the time, like certain things save their lives. And for me, like, like hardcore punk rock music saved my life, even though yeah, it's me too, hard, you know, but like, if it wasn't for, if it wasn't for hardcore and punk, like I never would have got into skating. And if I didn't get into skating, I wouldn't have ended up becoming like a writer. And if I didn't become a writer, you know, then this, like the Dave Grohl thing, this sort of Forrest Gump, like, I think that's why I love his story because he recognizes this sort of like, you know, this Genesis that happens, not just for everybody or not just for him, but for everybody, just with him, it's, you know, fucking Paul McCartney or, you know, Ravi Shankar, or, you know, you Tom Petty, you know, mm-hmm. anybody else like that. But, um, you know, for me, it was, for, I mean, like, you know, I mean, I, I lay it, I lay it all on Henry Rollins. I mean, when I first, when I first heard my war in 1985, I mean, I was in a very dark place and that shit probably kept me from killing myself, even though it like, it's a heavy, heavy album, yeah, super heavy album. And I was definitely in a, you know, I was definitely in a space where like, you know, puberty and, 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 and some other, you know, my own, my own particular mental problems were all coming in, you know, coming into a head. I don't harp on that too much. Cause I, I feel like, I feel like sometimes you can feel um, or sound petty or whatever. And I don't feel, I don't, I don't feel like anything that I went through at that time was as strong as like what other people have are definitely going through. You know I mean? I think everybody has, I think everybody has ideas of suicide at some point. It doesn't mean, you know, this ideation, I think sometimes it's just, you know, of, of the brain rewired sort of the single, like it's just overwhelmed. You know, and the only way that you can manifest it is this idea of shutting it off. And the only way that you can think about shutting it off is by death. And so that's how it comes about. Um, I, I feel that some people's um, some people's urges are stronger. Some of them are undeniable. Um, you know, some people just have to follow through. Um, I was, I think, I think I was number one. I don't feel that I felt it as strong as some people, but also number two, I think ultimately, I think I was probably too fucking scared anyways. Thank God, sure. <laughs> you sure. know? Yeah. yeah. Um, and, you know, and I've said that I've had this conversation with a few people before in the past and they like, they recognize, I think they recognize that as well. Um, and I think, you know, those are, those are things like with, you know, with, with Rollins spoken word stuff specifically where I realized I wasn't alone, you know, mm-hmm. that there were, there were, there were other individuals out there that were capable of like complex thoughts and emotions because you know, all we see, we go back to this presentation thing. And I think this sort of was where I wanted to head with it originally was, you know, we, we see these presentations of, of, of people that seem so well adjusted. And I mean, we're all a fucking mess. We all have such messy lives. Um, some people are really good. And I mean, I'm fairly certain of their people at many points in my life, they were like, you know, he seems to have a shit together. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, I, I, I think <laughs> I'm sure that there was probably a lot of that were like, oh, fuck, that guy's a mess. <laughs> um what do things look like for you nowadays i mean you mentioned that you practice meditation you're running Mm -hmm. almost every day um as a former alcoholic who had that uh, that addictive tendency to to get obsessed with things do you still have that tendency now even though you've taken the alcohol away for the most part but uh I mean, I don't, yeah. And no, so it's, you know, it's funny. I look at my youngest and I'll, I'll tidy this in. I promise. Um, I think I've always had like, he's, he's like me, like he's a, he's a Renaissance man in this, in this, in this sense of the word. And even my dad is to a certain degree. Like if I get into something, I'm all in, mm-hmm. like, I want to know everything about it. And then I may like, I may never do anything with it. At some point I may just like, like pottery, like I haven't done in a couple of years. I've had people like, Oh, can you, you know, remember those, 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 um, those Japanese tea bowls you were making. Can you make me some of those? And I'm like, 
I mean, I could, but I'm not really into it right now. Um, you know, so in a, I guess in a, I guess in a roundabout way, that part's wired in anyways. And whether, whether that's nature and nurture, you know, that, or a combination of, you know, whatever it was that, that flip, that switch got flipped. So when I said no, but also yes, because it's like, when I first, when I first got back into, into running, I was just, you know, it's like, I did a 5k I the only reason I did the 5k was so I could run at the airport. Cause it was like, they shut the airport, the section of the airport down. So you could run on a runway and like, oh, really? Charlotte, yeah, Charlotte Douglas airport is, I mean, it's an international airport. You're running under fucking airplanes. I've never done that before. So I was like, I'll be a 5k, you know, oh, yeah, what, that sounds cool. I mean, I, for the, for not running in forever. And, you know, like I mean, I did decently. I mean, I pulled it off in 32 minutes and 32 seconds for somebody who had run in decades, really. I'm like, that's not bad. Um, But also for somebody who ran half, you know, half that time as a 5k when he was actually running, like, you know, it's kind of embarrassment too. And I'm, I'm a competitive (laughs) motherfucker. So um, I I sort of got back into it, but I just figured it'd be a way for me and my wife to do something together. And again, she doesn't enjoy running, but she is not like, she got home from work. She's working out right now. Like she is constantly doing something every day. Girl. Nice. I, I don't know where, like, I don't know where she gets the energy. Cause I'm like, <laughs> sometimes I get home and I'm like, don't just put it on the couch. Click yep. on the TV. <laughs> so, um, but once, once I got out on the trails and started running, um, when I was 1984, I think it was a uh, runner runners world magazine. They did a, a thing on the, I think it was the second year of the Leadville 100. And, I had just run uh, a local marathon and, you know, to me, that was as far as any human being could run. Right. right, I mean, right. Died. That's the story. <laughs> so it's like, you know, I just ran as far as any human being could run. And I did it, you know, and I was like at 13 years old, I'm like, look at me. And then I read this thing about Leadville and I'm like a hundred fucking miles. Like, like my head yeah. actually exploded. Like I couldn't wrap my head around right. anything about that. And, it just stuck in my head. Cause I'm like, that's, I, I'm like, I, I read that thing. And I was like, both, um, I was enthralled in a way that was like scared of it. Mm-hmm. Like the idea of running a hundred miles is so fucking scary. Like you can't imagine what that's got to feel like, you know, and there is, a, there is a fear of like, I think of pushing ourselves at any particular time. But I think for people whose um, nature and nurture is switched in such a way that they are drawn to things that are sometimes that element of fear or whatever. Mm -hmm. So I think that it like, that just locked into my head and I'm not, I'm like, I'm not a big, big bucket list guy. Like, Oh, I've got to do this before I die. Like I don't need to jump out of an airplane. I'm perfectly good. Not doing that. (laughs) You know, it's like, I have a, I, I love rock climbing. I have a fear of exposure that just like, I always thought I had kind of a fear of heights. And I, when one of my climbing buddies pointed out when we were in Arcata and I was like on this corner and it's like wide open sky, wide open sky. And it was like only 30 feet up off the ground at that point. Like I've been at that height many times. And I was just like, I'm dude, I'm shitting my pants. He's like, he goes, it's the exposure. It gets you every time. Um, so the, the idea of Leadville just kind of like, it's, it's always hung in the back of my head. And I've always been fascinated by people that are willing to push past, like, you know, I've, 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 my father was a big fan of, of, of mountaineering and I've always been a fan of mountaineering, probably got it from him. I mean, when I was a kid, it was like, you know, I read my side of the mountain and, you know, is 
just like my plant is just like the walking man stories when I was a kid, like who doesn't want to live in a tree with a falcon? I do. <laughs> um, but you know, it's like something that normal people don't do, right? Like that's that that required something. So I think there's like this this archetype that has always been like for me, that's been a mythos, like that I'm attracted to. So the idea of people doing like Iron Man or um, you know, doing these super long kayak trips or you know, whatever, whatever, whatever it is, but things that really push endurance. Yeah, I did a rod. Like just all this shit. Like, like I love people where the real challenge is themselves and how yes. far they can push. Yeah. So, you know, when I started back up running, and I was, I think it was the first time I got past, like, you know, got 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 past a fifteen k on a trail run. It's the first, you know, my first summer back running or whatever. And it's like I'd signed up for a race. It was called Killer Creek, and they had. Um, well, 50 K was their furthest distance. And then they had a 25 K and like a four mile race and something in between. And I, Oh, it's an eight mile. And I was like, I'm going to do the, I was like, I'm going to sign up for the eight mile. Cause I know I can run eight miles. Like not a problem. I'm like, I'm, I'm definitely not ready for anything past that, but I really wanted to like the 16 miler was sort of already hanging on my, like my peripheral, like my sister had passed away. Um, she was a police officer in Austin, was killed in the line of duty, like weeks of coming out of academy. She had owned restaurants, had worked as, had like worked as a, a, a investment banker, was one of her bucket lists was to have a million dollars in the bank. And she was almost there. Mind mm-hmm. you, these are, she's, this is somebody who had a child when she was 15, came from the same sort of poverty and violent background that I came from. And she really made something of herself. And, but she always wanted to be a cop. I was always a robber when we were kids. She was always a cop. <laughs> but um, she really wanted to do it. So she she had to sell her restaurant. She had to take care of all this other stuff. But she went to academy. Like I said, I think she was one week into being out of the academy and on the force. Was supposed to be on bike patrol at the University of Austin. And some people pulled rank and whatnot. And they put her in a partner, put her and her partner in a car. And um, they stopped uh, to speak to an individual who... Uh, looked like they were doing something shady, smelled like weed. They did a little um, um, computer lookup, found out there was a warrant out for the guy. The guy started to run. My sister is also a phenomenal runner. Um, her husband is a, a uh, uh, like a championship kickboxer, has trained people to box and, and do karate for his entire life. My sister was a black belt. So she chased this dude down, managed to you know, wrestle him to the ground, her partner ran back in the car. The dude broke free. She started to run after it and ran it, running after him. And uh, her business partner basically slammed her between a telephone pole and the car oh. for the basically cutting her in half. Oh my uh, God. And this was, this was on, on uh, uh, Halloween. Right. So I get, I get a phone call at four o'clock in the morning. And I, it's so weird. I didn't even bring this part up because this was like, this broke me. Um, mm. Like, I think I was probably teetering most of my life. And after that, that was it. Like I'm, I, I just flipped the, the amount of, the amount of grief that I had carried already in my life, just, it became too much to bear. Um, and so anyways, this opportunity to run 16 miles on the anniversary of my sister's death, um, 16 years after it, it was, it was like the, the, it was too succinct, right? Like the universe mm-hmm. was saying like, dude, hello, mm-hmm. like you have, to do this you have to do this so um i uh i i kept i kept in touch with the race directors and said hey you know when do i have to make a decision 
And like, they were familiar with sort of what was going on. They're like, you, you can tell us day of, if you want, um, whatever you want to do. So uh, it became sort of a, you know, what became sort of a, a, a long, like, a, like a, the impossible goal and 60 miles, like we all know, it's not very long, but when you're first starting back out, 60 miles is still long enough, Huge. right? Yeah. So um, I managed to, uh, I, I ran the, I ran the 16 miles and, uh, and somewhere around mile, mile 13, I had a, uh, um, one of those very liberating moments of, of with my sister's grief and her memory. And I was able to like, when I, like, I mean, I broke down in absolute tears in the way that you do when you're running far longer distances, when the emotions get so strong, because you know, I mean, you run that long in your head, you know what happens. And for me, I was there. Um, I came out of that race and um, I had purged, you know, 16 years of grief in a way that, um, that I was unable to do it before. And Mm -hmm. immediately afterwards, it was the only thing I could think about is, was like, you have to, you know, you're, it's always been like, you have to, you have to do a hundred miles. You have to do it. Ultimately, you know, if, if I'm able to do a Leadville, that would be fantastic. I mean, you know, some people it's Western States for me, it's Leadville because that was what I heard. Yeah. Um, so last year, uh, last year I did a, uh, um, right around April, I did a, a, a timed event and it was eight hours and I ended up a uh, podium. I ended mm-hmm. up pulling a podium on that one second place. It was the first time going, it was my first time going into an ultra distance like I'd done some of the Yeti on like, you know, virtual challenges, like 24s and 48 hours, but not, not a whole one. And, uh, you know, I, I, I was uncertain whether I was like where I was on the last lap. Like, I'm like, I'm going to, I'm going to end up like two minutes behind when I come onto that, like that last little loop, like I'm going to time out right in front of the damn thing. And the race director's running up and I'm like expecting to come deliver the bad news. Like, Hey dudes, you know, just so you know, you timed out, like, this last lap doesn't count. And uh, he came up and asked me, you know, he's like, Hey, when's the last time you podiumed? And I'm like, dude, I don't know. I think it was like 15 years old. And he goes, well, you're about to. And I was like, fuck, we better go. Nice. Uh, so I ended up pulling second place and that kind of like, you know, they got the competitive guy in me going, which isn't always a good guy. And uh, immediately, I think it was like a couple of weeks after they were like, they decided they were going to do this hundred mile race called Unico. So I signed up for it sight unseen. And, uh, ended up flaming out towards the tail end, tail end of last year, hip flexors went out. Like it was, it was not, it was the worst possible um, way to end my year that I could imagine at the time. Um, I still went to the race, you know, I, I, I crewed all day for everybody that was there, but uh, you know, I started the new year out still sort of injured, but with a renewed sense. So it's like, I've got, I've got a couple, like I've got about six races that I'm doing this year, but normally I'm like, you know, I'll sign up for every single one of them and not have any plans whatsoever. So this year I'm like, yeah, one thing, one goal at the end of the year, and that's to get, get a hundred miles up under your belt. Um, and, uh, it's, it's kind of, in, and I, and on top of it, I don't have any competitive goals. Cause initially last year it was like, you know, fuck if I pull second place, this one, all I do is push harder. And I was, I mean, you know, I had a decent base, but I didn't have, I didn't have enough base to start pushing the mileage or excuse me, pushing the pace that I was doing without injuring myself. And I just ended up, I did it going back to like, you know, all those bad habits that I was taught when I was in high school overstriding, even though I'm a, even though I land on my toes, still opening way too wide. Um, that knee injury caused me to, uh, change my biomechanics, 
even though I have a very nice butt, according to my wife, my posterior chain is weak. So my hip flexors are doing like the work <laughs> I'm supposed to do. It's all these things. So, um, you know, it's, it's all about progress. So this year, I'm, you know, I'm not, not I'm, I'm, I'm back to when I first got in, when I got back into running this time around where I was like, I just want to do it because I love it. Not, 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 not for Strava, not for, you know, not for, uh, likes and dislikes. And you know, I'm not trying to show off on social media. Um, you know, I want to share, I want to share my messages on stuff and I want to keep people, um, that, you know, that have responded well or felt inspired by what I, about my story and what I share. I want them to do the same. Um, so I don't want to be like, you know, I don't want to be that guy that's pushing people like, you know, the only way no guts, no glory. Like I'm not, like, this year is not about that. Like I had to, I had my, like my two A goals, um, for both of my races. And then I've had B and C plans as well, knowing full well that, you know, plans change life happens. We had an outbreak of COVID at work. I ended up finally catching COVID. Um, luckily, I mean, I'm fully vaccinated. So it was really mild. Longest vacation I've ever actually had in 20 years. It was 10 days at home. <laughs> Thank you, COVID. Nice. Um, yeah, exactly. So, um, you know, I mean, that, I'm just keeping my eyes on the prize. I'm like, I'm not like, I'm just, I got a little quick this year. Like, like I, I saw my times coming down pretty fast and was doing more, like I was getting my base on the road at first just to make sure that I wasn't like aggravating my hips or anything like that. And, uh, um, I ended up having a slight aggravation. I just had to re sort of rethink everything. So I'm, 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 I finally have my, 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 my Buddhist, my, my Buddhist mentality and my long distance running and my sobriety, like perfectly balanced for, you know, like I said, like I'm, 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 I'm weirdly happy for the first time in my life for no big reason whatsoever. And that's probably the best reason at all. Nice. The best for all. Beautiful. I mean, that's it right there. That's what it's all about. Do you have a hundred miler you have your eyes on? Yeah, I've already signed up. So it's the same one, Unico. Um, okay. you got guys from Vagabond Endurance, which is a local crew here um, out of Charlotte, two brothers, uh, Dan and Rory. They were the guys that did that, like that race. So I was talking about the 16 miler. So they're, um, they're, I think they got six races in a buckle this year. So it's sort of like, you know, if you run all six races that they do, they're doing a buckle series, but they're still doing the hundred miler for Unico. Um, and I think number one, going out and seeing it for the, you know, like being part of it without running it gave me, I was able to, like, I collected a lot of beta while I was there. I was seeing what worked, what didn't work um, and how, and how it applied to me because some of the guys that were successful um, aren't necessarily running or running like me or running for the same things that I'm running for. Um, but there was enough that I saw that work that I said, this translates, I can do this. So I've got, I've got, a, I think I've got a better, healthier plan. Um, and I'm basically everything that I'm doing, I've got a race next weekend. It's a 60 K, uh, up three mountains here. Um, Morrow mountain, uh, well, Morrow mountain and two other ones. And, Normally I'd be like, well, you know, I have to go out and run this really hard. And I'm like, I love running up hills. So this is, this is geared for me. It's a training run. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm doing damn Yeti 50 miler in June. And although I have some time goals on that one, again, it's a training run. I only have one goal this year and that's to do the hundred miles. So it's like, if I come in DFL, sweet. Yeah. If I come in, as long as I come in DFL uninjured, because that's the one thing I don't want. Like, I don't want to deal with that this year. It's like everything this year is about being healthy, being strong and being ready to do that. So I think once I, I think once I get that done, then I can honestly start looking at some doing, you know, like trying to get into something like Leadville 
while still well i'm still young enough to pull that thing off um it, it, with with enough time where i can enjoy a little vacation as opposed to spending it all out on the trail dude get to leadville man get, i really hope you get to leadville i would love to pace you out here i would love to be a part hey, of it you guys are right out there you're in boulder right i'm in boulder i'm two hours away from leadville man um yes man i hope you find your way to leadville i'd love to pace you i'd love to be a part of it um try and make that happen dude well, the thing is now that i know that i know somebody out there it's yeah. kind of a it's a foregone conclusion for me. Like well, I always it would, be, have uh, it would be a full circle thing for you as well, because you read that article way back in the day and uh, yeah, dude. Yeah. Make it happen, dude. Make it Please. happen. I, I'd love to be a part of it, man. Well, and now I'm going to have to try to make that happen. It was funny when they had the, uh, they had the things open, the uh, registration opened up whenever it was like November or something or December. I can't remember. Anyways, one of my, one of my buddies from back home, who's also got the, like, similar story not with all the sobriety issues that i'm aware of but he got back into running and doing ultras again then he sends me the link you know through uh through messenger on facebook where it's like you know registration's open for this and i'm like nah man this is not this year (laughs) one goal that's it yeah i'm not not getting distracted for the first time in my life i'm not getting distracted nice well it sounds like a good plan man i mean you slowly check these things off get that one goal for the year under your belt and then start working on next year man i mean that's that's the way this stuff goes you know that hey you know i finally i'm finally growing up at 50 almost 52 years old (laughs) the dumbest smart guy you'll ever meet that's i love it i love it dude (laughs) well thank you for doing this man it was an honor to have you on the show and uh i just i just love talking to you and i i hope we can share some miles someday out in the mountains like all night long struggling and, and suffering and yeah dude it'd be fun it'd be fun well this has been and this has been great too and i really appreciate like you know as soon as you, as soon as you and I connected up on Instagram and I was looking at the stuff that you're doing, I'm like, man, I got it. Like this guy, like you can just tell when you, when somebody's on the same, like the same energy pattern that you're on, yeah. I don't have energy pattern. That sounds so crystal like, and I'm not like that new agey, but you know, it's just <laughs> some people just sort of ring in the same vibrancy, the same, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, yeah, whatever. Yeah, They're the same vibe, vibration. <laughs> yeah. Whatever. That's the, That's the word. Yeah. Um, and oh, I think totally. there's a lot. I think there's a lot of people that, like I said, I think the the thing about trail running communities is, I, you know, it's a, it's a growing section, but I still think that there's a core group of people that are drawn to it the same way that there's like that core group of people that are drawn to skateboarding, hardcore, even kitchens, you know, it's just sort of like, I think I've always been drawn to the things where the lost and found end up. Cause then mm-hmm. I think trail running is sort of like, you know, an ultra running is a lost and found skateboarding was a lost and found hardcore is a lost and found, you know, he's just sort of like, oddly broken souls that just managed to come together for something really fucking cool. Yes. Yeah. That's, it's true, man. And half of us are recovering alcoholics, aging white dudes with tattoos. And, uh, but, it, but it's good, man. We all shake hands and hug at the end and, and it's cool, man. Well, Mark, thanks for doing this, man. I appreciate you and stay in touch and, and make Leadville happen next year, dude. And if not next year, you know, a couple years down the road, but definitely look me up when it happens. I'm well, already that- in, I'm already in dude. So, um, yeah, just, just stay in touch and, uh, yeah, man, um, keep doing big things and, and, uh, yeah, I love it. Love the story, man. So yeah. You too, Adam podcasts like this, I think are these long form podcasts, I think are super important. So I don't know if, you know, if you get enough accolades, but I think, you know, even like, you know, small podcasts, you know, you need like, like, like a ritual podcast is like, you know, Oh my God, it's so fucking big. But you know, it's like, I think, I think the ones that are getting, 
unknown anonymous people. I think these are the important ones. So keep doing what you're doing. I really love your podcast. Oh, thanks dude. Yeah. I think the right people are listening to it. It's kind of underground, but I kind of like it that way. So right on. I, I appreciate that, man. Well, Mark, have a great day. Like I said, stay in touch, dude. You're badass. Yeah, so are you. Thanks, Adam. I appreciate you. Cool, brother. Have a good day. You too. All right. All right, guys. Uh, heartfelt thank you for listening and hanging out until the end of the show. I really, really appreciate you guys. I'd like to give a shout out to all of our sponsors. First of all, Exoskin. Their running apparel keeps you comfortable in absolutely any condition. Say goodbye to chafing and blisters. Check them out. Exoskin.us. Use our discount code, capital BTC, for 15% off. Real quick, I want to tell you guys about Bigger Than the Trail. Bigger Than the Trail is a 501c3 tax-exempt organization that is using trail running as a platform to advocate for mental health. If you've ever thought about getting therapy and aren't exactly in a position where you can afford it right now, Bigger Than the Trail offers you free therapy for up to three months. No strings attached, you guys. This is this is really, really cool what these guys are doing. I couldn't love what they're doing anymore, in fact. Uh, I signed up. It was quick. It was easy. They matched me with a therapist that met my personal criteria, and I meet with them once a week. I'm trying this thing. You guys should try this thing, and we can all do this together. Look up Bigger Than the Trail, sign up for their services, and let's do the small things in life that eventually lead us to doing the big things. Please let them know we sent you. We also want to thank our good friends at Alter Ego Running. They make premium performance hats, and who doesn't need a good hat when you're out running or on an adventure? These hats should be your go-to on your everyday runs, epic adventures, and just cruising around town. Check out Alter Ego Running. Use our promo code, capital DOBIGTHINGS, all caps, for 20% off. This podcast is also brought to you by our good friends at On Pace Wellness. Contact them if you need to get your nutrition on track. Mention this podcast. He's going to give you a 10% discount and get you properly tuned up. Last but not least, this podcast is brought to you by Athletic Brewing, the finest, in my opinion, non-alcoholic craft beer on the market. Check out athleticbrewing.com. Use my discount code, McRobertsA20 all caps, for 20% off the best non-alcoholic beer around. Enjoy the taste without the hangover. All right, guys, find us at big-things-crewing.com or patreon.com slash do big things. Life is short. Do big things, baby. Pedro, thanks for a run, homie.